0: Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Friday, May 1st. We begin with our weekly chat with Mayor Nahed Nenshi. We get the mayor's thoughts on the newly released provincial plan to reopen the economy and the impact it may have
1: on our city. Next, we continue the conversation surrounding the move into the post-pandemic era. We speak with Dwayne Bratt, professor of political science at Mount Royal University.
0: As isolation continues, for the most part, there are concerns people aren't taking into account how difficult this pandemic is for working parents. We'll look at the challenges faced in this situation through the eyes of a parent. Parenting expert.
1: It's National Immunization Awareness Week. We speak with a doctor on the importance of keeping up scheduled annual vaccinations during this coronavirus crisis. And finally,
0: Jackson Proskow, Global's Washington Bureau Chief, joins us. Jackson has the latest details on the COVID nineteen situation stateside. Seven forty two on the morning news. Enjoying this difficult time, it's important to hear from our leaders. Joining us for our weekly chat is Mayor Nahed Nenshi. Good morning, Mayor. Good morning. Well, let's start with your thoughts, because I know it's a a big talking point, Albertans. You're either excited or you're saying it's too soon. What do you think of the Premier's Premier's plan to reopen the province?
2: Well, I'm probably both of those things at the same time, uh, which is I'm really happy to see that there's a plan. Uh, I think that the plan is well thought out and risk-based. There's a couple of weird things in it that I've been talking to provincial government about, like why is registered massage therapy, not with chiropractic and with artificial planning, you know, things mm-hmm. like that. Um, but by and large, I think they've really been thoughtful about bringing this through uh, in terms of the stages that are there, uh, w- with a few exceptions. The thing that makes me nervous is everyone's gotten so excited saying May 14th is the day. And the premier was very clear saying it could be as early as May 14th, but that is really a target. And a bunch of things have to happen between now and May 14th for that to work. But the most important one is, as always, as I say to you, with you guys every week, it's in our own hands. So the physical distancing rules are not changing. The gatherings tapped at 15 people, not changing. And so we have to continue to act in a way as though not that we don't want to get sick, but each of us has to act like we already have the virus and we don't want to spread it. And we need to keep doing that in order, if you like, to earn the reopening phases that the Premier talked about.
1: Mayor, you know, you would know better from behind the scenes, but it seems, and we're hearing this from texters and friends and listeners, that it just sort of, you know, we haven't even peaked yet. And all of a sudden, this plan pops up and we're good to go.
2: Well, yeah, and, and we're not good to go, right? It's Uh, As I keep saying, it's not about flipping a switch. It's about turning a faucet. But a lot of people think too soon. Starting at, you know, and I got to tell you, when I heard the dates, I thought too soon. Um, You know, if he had said June 1st instead of May 14th, I think I would have felt a lot more comfortable. But to give the Premier his due, what he said was as early as May 14th, depending on how things go over the next two weeks. And, you know, it's a legitimate thing to say, you know, he's got some interest in opening some of this stuff before the may long weekend okay now the stuff that's immediately happening um around dentists who have a lot of personal protective equipment who are very well versed in not spreading infection and and i've got a lot of friends with toothaches who've been miserable these last few weeks (laughs) um you know that stuff i think that's good to go i call it stage zero um you know golf of course has been very controversial and we're we're not sure what we're going to do about the public golf courses yet we still have to work that through Um, but by and large, the stage zero stuff, it's good. And we've been sitting around thinking about, you know, what would stage one be at the City of Calgary as well? And we have talked about, can we open restaurants back up to 50% capacity as long as there's social distancing and you're you're going to the restaurant with the people in your cohort, not with other people? Um, Can we think about patios that are outdoors? And we could do a little different things with allowing pop-up patios. So those sorts of things, I think it is time to think about them. But I have to underline again that two days ago, we had the largest number of cases increase in Calgary. So we may have plateaued. We have not peaked. And so it's going to be critical to look at the numbers over the next few days and to look at the healthcare system's capacity to be able to handle outbreaks. Because remember, much of our growth has been driven by one outbreak, which had 900 cases. Mm -hmm. And, um... So we're just one outbreak away <clears throat> from seeing those increases again. And, and, and because of that, we have to be very, very thoughtful in understanding the healthcare capacity. You know, uh, and I shouldn't say this, but I will. We have to remember that flattening the curve, which is what we've been working on, doesn't actually reduce the number of infections. It spreads them out over a longer period mm-hmm. so that the healthcare system can handle it so that fewer people get bad complications. And frankly, fewer people die. But it still means people are going to get the infection. And we have to work really hard with these reopenings to make sure we're doing everything we can to to, to stop the spread of the infection.
0: Good stuff. Thank you for your time this morning, Mayor. Thank
2: you. I should say, by the way, before we go on, that we had a big announcement yesterday, too. Uh, The city of Calgary, of course, is in a bad shape financially. We're going to be uh, down you know, well over $200 million, maybe as much as $400 million in the year. But nonetheless, we were able to announce a bunch of measures yesterday uh, to help businesses around waiving fees and so on. And people can see those at Calgary.ca.
1: Awesome. Great news. Thank you again for joining us. Appreciate it.
2: Thank you. Have a great weekend, everyone. But remember, stay safe. Still. Clean hands,
1: clear heads, open hearts. Thanks, all. Mayor Nahed
0: Menchie. 719 on the morning news. Yesterday, Premier Jason Kenney and Alberta's Chief Medical Officer of Health announced the staged relaunch strategy for Alberta's economy. To get his take on the plan, we're joined by Mount Royal University political science professor Dwayne Bratt for details. Good morning, Dwayne.
3: Good morning.
0: Dwayne, you uh, tweeted yesterday, this looks like a detailed and reasonable relaunch strategy for Alberta. You still think that?
3: Uh, I do. I mean, people were going after me for for saying that and saying well what about this what about that you know you can't make contingencies for everything this is a very fluid very complicated situation but if you look at the phases right there's a series of different businesses uh that are allowed to be reopened uh at different times um with with restrictions and it goes from Things like uh, golf courses and, and parks uh, this weekend, and then on May 14th, we're looking at restaurants at, at below 50% capacity, barbershops, hairstyling, some retail businesses. And then the next stages will de- all depend on the the metrics that they've identified, which is hospitalization, infections, and ICU cases.
1: I thought it was a little strange, not going to lie, that golf courses were the first thing that we would open up in the province. But yeah. uh, th- that being said, are you of the mind, Dwayne, that we just really need to get this economy rolling no matter what?
3: Uh, it, it, no, not no matter what. Um, you know, people will say that, well, if you, if you wait too long, um, that's a problem. And it's true. And if you go too early, that's also a problem. Both could lead to second waves, could lead to additional um, death tolls, or could lead to greater economic uh, collapse. And so it's trying to find that, that sweet spot. Um, and I think that's what the government has done. You'll notice when they outline the stages um, that there are no dates put on those stages. And they can't because they have to rely on those metrics. And you'll also notice that... There's no specific number that's put in place, uh, and that's because they're looking not just at the overall number, but they're looking at potential spikes, and they're also looking at region. So what happens if there's a major outbreak um, you know, in, in red deer? Does that mean uh, that red deer moves back a step with the rest of the province moves forward? These are things that are really going to be made on a case-by-case basis. What these metrics are are really guidelines for reopening.
0: And within the guidelines, I think, uh, you know, we're, we're glossing over, if you really dig deep, uh, it does list, uh, you know, not only the physical distancing requirements through each stage, but also what is prohibited when it comes to the numbers of people. So I think we're still underscoring that the size of the gatherings, at least uh, perhaps till the end of the May, uh, is certainly going to be, uh, you know, governed big time.
3: Oh, and, and the, the ban on large gatherings. So whether those are festivals, whether those are large sporting events, you know, those aren't going to kick in until uh, late in stage three. So I can't see those uh, breaking up until the, the fall, for example. So, yeah, the, the, the bigger focus remains on the social distancing requirements. So, yes, you can open up a restaurant, but you better make sure that the patrons are two meters apart. Yes, you can open up uh, a sports camp, but you still need sort of those distancing, which is going to reduce... The number of kids that are in the day home or in mm-hmm. the summer camp
1: thanks for your thoughts duane appreciate it
3: okay thanks guys
1: that's duane bratt political science professor at mru
0: 609 on the morning news and as this temporary situation uh, continues into the future parents are losing steam homeschooling kids while working from home so is this sustainable for working parents we're joined by parenting expert allison schaefer good morning allison
4: Good morning. How are you?
0: Good. Thank you for taking the time. I want to, you know, uh, uh, insert my experience. I'm still in the office in the radio station here. I get home. My wife is working from home in the afternoon. We have uh, two toddlers, no daycare, so I'm on parenting duty for the rest of the afternoon. And I've got my school-aged kids um, trying to hover over and making sure that they're doing uh, their schoolwork. I'm more tired than I've been in recent years, and I, I guess I'm not alone, Allison.
4: No, you are absolutely not alone. And and your situation sounds particularly taxing. I also think about those people that are like single mums with oh, infants. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's uh, people that are in uh, relationships that are abusive. I mean, it's really, there's the whole gamut out there right now. And, and it's why the conversation has turned more to um, protecting and ensuring our good mental health in the long run uh, as we uh, fight this uh, Pandemic. So, first it was
1: all about disease, and now it's all about mental health, and it's a serious, serious concern worldwide. It really is. So, I mean, what do we do? I think parents, you know, everybody's doing the best job they can. We're in a situation we've never been in before. So, you know, I'm sure you're hearing from a ton of parents. what What's the sort of the consensus? What's the best case? What do we do as we move forward?
4: So, I, I agree with you that um, we keep giving the directive just do your best. But, you know, the, the probably the uh, person who is the hardest on themselves is not their employer. It, it's it's us. It's mm-hmm. our inner critics. It's our inner critics saying, um, you know, on a better day, I would have yelled less, or if I was more organized, I could have been a better parent to my homeschooler. And a lot of it is our own self-criticism and um, evaluation that we're somehow failing and, and not doing okay. And so I would say we have to really turn off that, critical voice and instead turn to that compassionate side of ourselves that would talk to ourselves like we would talk to any friend. You know, how would you calm a friend? You'd say, hey, it's okay. We've all been there. It's all right. (laughs) Um, We're not very good at doing that for ourselves. And and I think, um, you know, to Andrew's point, there is a village. It's just we have to connect with them virtually. And we've seen incredible creativity with that. And, you know, I'm, uh, even though you've got toddlers, I'm sure there's uh, a grandparent who would sit through an iPad and read stories <laughs> to them or, or whatever, you know.
0: And to that point, you might have a gold standard of parenting during normal times. My wife said, you know, I think the kids might be watching too much TV. I, I'll leave it on for an hour when I have a Zoom call. And I said, uh, you know, I say, listen um these are different times <laughs> you do what you yeah do. yeah desperate times desperate measures so I, I think the lines can be blurred of what we consider you know uh, again gold star parenting and what we're doing now
4: I, I totally agreed and you know this uh, just to to put it in perspective uh, you know I've traveled all over the world and and um, you know I It stuck to me that when I was speaking in Bulgaria, there was a time after the regime had come down where everybody had to work. There was no childcare; all the grandparents were working, and it was customary for kids to be tied to furniture or locked in their bedrooms so parents could go out and work. And uh, uh, you know, it's horrible. But when we look at you know this, our situation isn't great. But you know what? We've got technology. We can prop our kids up in front of educational programming. Mm -hmm. It's amazing they can still reach out to their teachers and their friends. There's a lot that's actually uh, you know working whether we like it or not, uh, on some level, um, I guess you could say things could always be worse. Um, but yes i would say if let's use technology for the the great wonderment that it can be and yeah that might just be silly youtube videos while mum takes the conference call <laughs> and we might take it in the car in the driveway so that it's quieter <laughs> yeah
1: so do you think we're 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 becoming more resilient as we go forward with this i mean we've just heard you know of an easing of of our lockdown as of yesterday so we may start to see some daycares some summer camps opening up soon but are we getting more and more resilient and finding better ways to deal with these situations? Or are we just running out of steam, like you say?
4: No, I think we are developing resilience, and in fact, some of the uh, early research on these six weeks have shown that 25% of families have actually said that this has been a uh, bonding experience, mm-hmm. and I've certainly heard that anecdotally through parents saying, you know, we used to never have dinner together, and now we're having dinner, or I kind of lost touch with my teenager, but now we've created this whole, you know, TikTok dance together, and it's been a real improvement in our relationship. There are, there are some, some good things that have happened, and incredible creativity, as you've seen with these you know, birthday parades, and I don't know, there's a million examples yeah. of what people have done as workarounds that I think have been more, in some ways, more special than the daily grind. I
1: would agree.
0: And it will also, uh, you know, shine the light on the importance of those afternoons when grandma and grandpa like to take the kids for ice cream, or those uh, play dates that uh, one parent says, hey, listen, you look like you're busy, uh, we'll take the kids for a couple of hours. I think it underscores the village that we have during normal times and the importance of having that connection.
4: Absolutely. And now not only are we seeing that village, um, just our local village, but the global village, we've never all had to face the same challenge as a planet. to Well, I guess you could say global warming, but we didn't wake up to that. This has really been a bit of an equalizer to say we really need to link arms and do this together. And everyone is, is carrying a piece of that. And I think it's been a really wonderful experience um, to, to see humanity come together the way that it has. Um, so. Uh, there's There has for sure been benefits, and I don't think we'll ever unremember, how, to your point, how much we're now going to appreciate those teachers, yeah. oh, you're <laughs> and those daycare workers, Absolutely,
1: <laughs> That's been a good, a good result of it for sure. Do you think it changes parenting going forward? Do you think parents now maybe are thinking more about working from home because they, they like how this works? They like being able to spend some more time with their kids, maybe not full-time as we are right now, but as the kids go back, do parents want to stay at home? I think we will see a shift in that
4: for a long, long time. Uh, the experts like myself have been saying why there is detrimental effects to over-busy families and to over-scheduled families, and that we need to slow down and go back to some basic principles of time together, family bonding, playtime, free play. And uh, it got forced upon families, but I think they can all see the the benefits now. And I don't think we're going to go back to people... Uh, resuming the chaotic pace of life that they did before. And I think there has been a shift in, in the value set of families. And that, I think, is really great. I think people will still work. I think a lot of people are like, I, they just want to go back to maybe better balance, not, not so absent in the family. Mm-hmm.
0: like your optimism. And that's uh, the things we can take with us that were positives through the pandemic. Thank you very much for your time, Allison. Thank you, and stay well. That is a parenting expert Allison Schaefer. You can find her online, and it's Allison with a Y A L Y S O N Schaefer.com. As an example to all, Alberta's politicians must cut their pay. That's the headline of the latest article from Franco Terrazano, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, who joins us on the line now. Good morning, Franco.
5: Hey, good morning, and thanks for having me on.
0: You don't mince words with a headline like that. Mm. Uh, what are you saying, and what kind of a cut are you looking at?
5: Well, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation is calling for all politicians in Alberta to take a pay cut right now, and Many are no doubt working hard and, and working around the clock, but politicians are our elected officials need to show that they're willing to do their part as well because we've seen so many businesses, our, our favourite restaurants, our favourite theatres, our gyms, you know, they're closing their door and they're worried about their economic future. Last month, we saw more than 100,000 Albertans added to the ranks of the unemployed and many families no doubt worried about their next grocery bill or their family savings. So we need to see our politicians say that they're also willing to do their part and share in the tough times. Last year, they did take a pay cut, and and they deserve credit for that. But you know, at $121,000 $121,000 every year, Alberta's rank and file MLAs are still earning significantly more than their counterparts in other provinces, and, and, and that's really why we need to see our MLA say they're willing to show leadership, leadership and they're willing to tell Albertans that they're there through the good times and the bad times.
1: Franco, what does it mean when a politician actually takes a pay cut? Where does that money go, or is it really just the visual?
5: No, well, here there would be both Um, symbolic and also real savings. So the direct savings to taxpayers would be a little over a million dollars a year, But, but it's much more than just the dollar figure. And, you know, I don't want to stay on this point because many Calgarians and many Albertans in general know that we're all struggling right now. But it's very important for politicians to never be receiving compensation that is distant from the financial realities facing the people that they represent, facing the people that they are governing. It's very important for politicians to be in tune with what's going on in the ground. And and there's another really important point about this political pay cut and why it needs to happen. You know, Premier Kenny has said that we could be seeing Um, a deficit that could triple this year. Well, back in, you know, not too long ago, uh, then Premier Klein held up that paid in full sign and, and Albertans were very proud to not have any debt. Well, this year we could be seeing a debt number that is um, about $90 billion. So we've, we've fallen pretty far, and pretty soon Premier Kenney is going to have um, no choice but to make tough decisions. And before he makes those tough decisions, he'll have to be able to uh, sell to the public that he himself and, and his team are willing to make financial sacrifices as well.
0: Franco, you cite in your article that uh, this idea that you're uh, floating for our province is something that is happening across the globe. Uh, just you can look at uh, different nations and uh, even down south, of the border of of our fine nation.
5: Well, that's absolutely correct. We're seeing we're seeing politicians around the globe uh, willing to share in the tough times. We, we just heard of New Zealand's Prime Minister announcing that. She, along with her ministers and her top-ranking government bureaucrats, are taking 20% cuts. But it's not just in New Zealand. You know, from, from Minnesota to South Africa to Japan, politicians are deciding to reduce their own pay. We're even seeing um, some significant, really significant pay cuts. You know, Kenyan. Uh, Their their president, their deputy president, is giving up over 80% of their pay. And and we're even seeing politicians in in Malta, Malaysia, and Singapore, they're deciding to give up all of their pay for a few months.
1: Well, it'll be interesting to see if our politicians and our prime minister here in our country, they listen, if they take action. We'll be following it, and we thanks for your opinion on this.
5: Well, thank you so much for having me on.
1: That's Franco Terrazano with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. It's National Immunization Awareness Week and the group Immunize Canada wants all Canadians to keep vaccinating to ensure their defences against disease are at full strength. We're joined this morning by Assistant Professor at the University of Toronto and VP of North America of the Medical Women's International Association, Dr. Vivian Brown. Good morning, Doctor. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. Why, at this point in time are you know vaccinations so key to keep them up to date we don't have a vaccination yet for covid-19 are the others just as important right now well
6: i think what we're appreciating is just how valuable vaccine is And we have very clear guidelines from Immunize Canada, from the College of Family Physicians, from Public Health Canada, about not delaying routine immunizations. The last thing in the world we would want right now is an outbreak of measles or polio or whooping cough, some of those diseases that we've conquered. Um, And I think that although parents and patients are rightly concerned about going to the doctor's office at this time, there's clear guidelines to yes call your doctor go to the office and keep your immunizations up to date
0: dr brown how do i know i know that uh, when i when i bring my kids ask for that little card i half the time can't find it how (laughs) do i know what vaccinations uh, my children or i might need if i don't have uh, them written down in the house
6: You know, every province has a very clear schedule about what vaccinations are recommended. This is particularly important for children under the age of two because they haven't had their primary series yet. But most family doctors, I would say probably all family doctors and pediatricians, have a record of what immunization you've had. In some provinces, public health does more immunization than the individual doctors, and therefore public health would have the record. So I would suggest that you phone your family doctor first. We're always the first line of defense into the uh, healthcare care system. Mm-hmm. Um, and if your family doctor doesn't have the record, then public health most likely has the record of what you've had, what you're going to be due for. And some, some vaccines we give at age 65 for the first time in adults, in healthy adults. In other people, there's vaccines that are given earlier depending on your underlying medical conditions. But what we're really concerned with is that people not avoid doing their routine immunizations. Once this pandemic is finished, people are going to start traveling and you just don't want to be exposed to diseases that are preventable.
1: Doctor, the race is on to find the vaccine for COVID-19. There's so much misinformation about vaccines out there. Wondering your thoughts, mandatory vaccine for COVID-19 or not?
6: You know, I think that's a very hard question because, of course, in Canada, we value personal uh, choice and and we value individual decisions. Um, But you can imagine that there is going to be significant concerns if, for example, a school is open and some children are immunized and some children are not. So I think we're going to have to review the options very carefully, look at the age groups and underlying, um, underlying diseases very carefully, and then make a clear decision as to what is the best benefit for the population in general and for the individual. You know, I've been in practice long enough that some of my patients were victims of polio many years Mm. ago. And what we've seen now, uh, some recent research said in Pakistan, they've just picked up more than 50 new cases of polio. These diseases don't go away unless we immunize. And with COVID, I think it's going to be a virus that's here for quite some time, and it's only going to be through vaccination that we decrease the incidence in the general population and that we decrease the, the death rates. So I think we'll look at vulnerable populations first. And that usually is children under five and adults over 65. And we've seen in the long-term care facilities how how conditions have just deteriorated so quickly. Um, And then for other people, I think we'll have to see what we're advised by public health and what the situation is, how how long-term the vaccine lasts, like the, the length of protection we get from an individual vaccine whether or not there's variants of COVID, the way there's variants of influenza. There's a lot of scientific questions that we haven't answered yet. But bottom line, I do think vaccine is probably what's going to help us get back to a new normal.
0: Thank you so much for your time this morning, Dr. Brown.
6: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: That's Dr. Vivian Brown, Assistant Professor, University of Toronto, VP North America, Medical Women's International Association. 710 on the morning news on Friday. We like to get all the latest updates out of the U.S. from the Washington Bureau Chief for Global News, Jackson Proskow. Today, no different. Good morning, Jackson. Good morning. Let's start with COVID-19 and uh, reportedly uh, close to 1.1 million cases in the USA and around that 63,000 mark when it comes to deaths. Uh, What are you hearing as far as um, hitting the peak of COVID-19? Are we near the peak down south?
7: You know, it's it's really hard to say. I've been talking to experts about this all week long, and they say they definitely have not reached the peak here. Uh, and the question is, what does that look like when they get there? There seems to be sort of a growing sense that we're going to be stuck on this plateau where we have a really high number of infections and deaths every single day. Uh, and I should point out that, you know, the U.S. has consistently had 2,000 or more fatalities per day for more than a week now. That's an incredibly wow. high number. Um It's not going down, but what's changing is that New York, which had really been the hardest hit and made up almost half those fatalities at one point, is now down to about 300 fatalities per day. The rest of those deaths are happening elsewhere in the country because case numbers are surging in other places.
1: And yet all the rules and regulations pretty much eliminated as of midnight last night and and states are opening up for business as of today then, right?
7: Yeah, a majority of states, about 35, are relaxing their stay-at-home regulations. Some are letting them expire. Some are repealing them. Uh, it's really a, a sort of patchwork situation. So if you're in Georgia, you can get a haircut. If you can find a movie theater that's open, you can go in and sit and watch a movie. Uh, you can sit in in a restaurant with some social distancing regulations enforced. Uh, in Texas, all retail stores are allowed to uh, resume service on a drive-up basis, so you can pull up to the curb and have something brought out to you. Uh, but look, this is happening as Texas is seeing it numbers go up. Other states are being more cautious, and there were actually these armed protests in Michigan yesterday uh, where protesters uh, with with uh, guns stormed mm-hmm. the Capitol building to protest the fact that the governor uh, is keeping the stay-at-home order in effect there.
0: We're hearing dozens and dozens of countries working on a vaccination, and uh, obviously the U.S. no different. The White House working on a plan to rush a vaccine to market as early as January, um, and I always love these names. This one's called Operation Warp Speed. Tell us what we know about it.
7: Yeah, I will say it's a it's a it's half branding exercise and half stuff that was already sort of happening. And and uh, you'll recall that from the outset, they said it would take 12 to 18 months to develop a vaccine. Most people started counting that 12 months in January of this year when they got the sequencing of the virus from China. So that takes us to January 2021 as the sort of goal for this. What they're going to do is they're going to have the pharmaceutical companies develop several vaccines all simultaneously and make hundreds of millions of doses of all those vaccines simultaneously. So that when they know which one is most effective, it's ready to hit the market as quickly as possible. They don't need to ramp up production. Uh, And then instead of having the vaccine companies be on the hook for the costs of developing the faulty vaccines or the liability for vaccines that may be faulty and may cause harm to people the federal government here in the U.S. will take on that responsibility. That seems to be where they're headed with this. It's really about just rolling this out at a a record-setting pace because uh, I don't think anybody has ever developed a vaccine on that kind of timeline before.
1: Jackson, I want to talk to you about a a poll I was reading about in in terms of uh, comparing Trump and Biden and uh, whether people trusted Donald Trump to handle the pandemic or whether Joe Biden would be a more responsible leader in charge. Any word on that and the numbers that were sort of coming out of that?
7: Yeah, I mean, Biden has certainly been polling ahead of Trump uh, in recent weeks. And what we saw originally when this broke out and the president sort of started putting his face on the crisis daily with briefings is that his approval ratings actually surged. But those gains have been all but erased. And increasingly, Americans disapprove of the president's handling of this, which is why you've sort of seen him scale back and change the, 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 the tone of these daily briefings. There's fewer of them. Um, they're more targeted around specific announcements now. Uh, you know, part of the issue is that the president was using these daily briefings about coronavirus to talk about everything but coronavirus. He was going off on his political enemies and on against the media and all sorts of other issues that had nothing to do with the virus response. And he has stepped back in some respect, but he's still putting his face on the administration's uh, handling of this. And uh, you have to keep in mind that we're at the beginning of the beginning here, not the beginning of the end. So this week, for example, we saw um, the president at first try and lower the expected death toll from 60000 to Maybe 50,000. And then we saw the U.S. surpass the 60,000 mark. It's, it's really a, a tough situation. He's put himself in
0: Let's focus again on Joe Biden. Joe Biden addressed uh, sexual assault allegations this morning brought forward by a female staffer in the early 90s. Previously, he's denied any wrongdoing. What are we hearing from Biden or Biden? Are we hearing the same uh, stance this morning?
7: Yeah, he issued a, a flat-out denial of this. Uh, the woman who brought forward the accusation says she made it to Senate officials at the time, and Biden has said he's asked the Senate archives to go through and see if they can find any record of that accusation as well. Um, you know, Republicans and, and Trump's campaign are playing this one very cautiously because uh, it's very hard for them to talk about an allegation yeah. against Biden without bringing up the dozens of allegations that the president himself faces. Uh, but it could be something that does hamper Biden in the weeks and months ahead. It's sort of uh, at the very early stage right now. And so we have to sort of see how the allegation uh, is is aired and uh, how Biden continues to respond to it.
1: And speaking of the run for the presidency, now there's a Michigan congressman who's throwing his hat in the ring at this late date.
7: Yeah, he's running as an independent <clears throat> at this point. Uh, and uh, we'll just sort of have to see what happens. Uh, Third party candidates don't have a great track record in this country. Uh, really, it's going to be, a, you know, a Biden Trump contest.
3: hmm.
0: Okay, uh, last but not least, I've seen you on uh, Global TV uh, doing your segments. Your hair does not look shaggy. Uh, you are not uh, growing a mullet. Uh, uh, how are you keeping down
7: there? It's amazing what you can do with a home cut. Uh, a very careful, very, very careful home cut. Don't touch the top.
1: <laughs> you invested in the Floby years ago, didn't you? <laughs>
7: exactly, exactly. Uh, plans for the
1: weekend uh, now that things are opening up, or are you, you still you know, planning to sort of isolate a little bit and keep yourself safe?
7: Yeah, here in Washington, we're nowhere close to opening up. Uh, And in fact, uh, the mayor uh, here in Washington came out this week and said, best case scenario, two months before they start a phase reopening. Worst case, three months. So Mm. nothing's changing anytime soon around here, including the ability to get a haircut. A proper one, anyway.
1: (laughs) Thanks, Jackson, for joining us. Have a great weekend. You too. Be safe. That is Jackson Proskow, our Washington Bureau Chief for Global News.